this next series, um, I'm going to request something of you. Um, I'm, I understand, like the rest of you, like our tendency at times to just settle in, right? Um, to just kind of like go about like daily rhythms or weekly rhythms and just to like go places and to come here and just kind of um, hang out, you know, and be somewhat absent. Um, that's our tendencies. Our hearts are prone to wander and our minds are oftentimes uh, fickle. And so um, I, I get it, right? Um, but here's what I want to do, man. Like, as we approach and read God's word, as we begin this series through, um, through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, um, man, may we not approach God's word and our time with God's people like, like flippantly. Do, do we get that? Do we understand like our tendencies, our own tendencies to do that at times? I was thinking like as we were singing, man, we're singing of our resurrected king. Like, we're singing of the source of life and hope, our rescue, right, from wrath and judgment. And I just feel like sometimes, like, I can approach that in a way that it's like, okay, it's Sunday again, right? And, like, here we are. Um, And you're probably the same as I am, right? Because, like, thus is the human condition. And so here's what I want us to do. Um, I want us to challenge ourselves, Okay, I want us to um, I want us to lean in and to now having worshipped God in in prayer and in reading cooperatively together and like saying these wonderful truths about him, who he is, what he has done, singing to him. Do we get that? Like what we just came out of like is is an offering of gratitude and thanksgiving to our God. Like it's incredible and it ought to like stir our hearts and our emotions and our affections. It ought to do that. Right. Um, and so uh, as we come into this time in God's word, I man, let us continue to worship with our attentiveness. Right. Like let's like let's let's like slay the flesh. Right. And like and have dominion over our minds and say, no, we are here. Like my mind is in like 35 different places. And like I want to go there. and I want to think about this. But man, let's like be here. Like let's 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 be here this morning. Amen? Yes, absolutely. Here we are. We're beginning a series this morning um, in uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, we've just finished up a four-week series in the book of Ruth after a 66-week series in the Gospel of Mark. And so, um, hey, here we are, like two books in like a month. That's insanity. Like we are at an all-time record pace here. And so um, hang out for a while, and we'll, we'll finish these up as well. We're going to be taking the summer months to journey through Paul's letters to Timothy. And as with any book of the Bible, there are certain considerations that have to be or should be made as we approach it. Right, Things like authorship and who is the recipient of this letter and what's the context and even certain comprehension skills. In 1 and 2 Timothy, we see um, an example of a type of biblical genre known as an epistle. Uh, I believe that it was myself and perhaps, um, was it maybe China? Maybe China Gowan and I had a conversation about um, certain reading comprehension skills that tend to take a back seat 
when it comes to reading the Bible, right? Like we understand them and then we embrace them when it comes to like reading like Civil War history or The Hobbit. Um, but um, we really have a hard time in, in approaching the Bible in a similar fashion. And so in order to best help us, what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about what an epistle is, or what these epistles are, as we will be reading through over uh, the next few months. Two letters um, that make up a, a, a three-letter section in our Bibles known as the pastoral epistles. And that simply means this, that we are reading a letter from the Apostle Paul, um, uh, likely while he was on mission, to a Jesus community. Right. In this case, specifically, um, Timothy, a, a young pastor who we will talk more about his relationship with Paul in just a few moments. But but Timothy is a is a pastor. He's a young guy and he is receiving this letter from Paul while he is likely again on one of his missionary journeys in order to address some some major issues. Right. Timothy has been sent by Paul to Ephesus. And we're familiar with the book of Ephesians, perhaps, right? This is the, the same area. This is a very influential church that is um, finding itself infiltrated with a leadership uh, who has given themselves over to speculation and certain distorted teachings. And as a result, it has created some major issues. And one Timothy as a whole, which is where we will begin this journey, We'll begin in 1 Timothy, um, and then we will go over to 2 Timothy, right? Um, that makes logical sense. We love exposition. We love sequential exposition here at Christ the King. And so as we work through 1 Timothy, um, seeking to understand the context to which Paul is, is writing and the circumstances in which Timothy finds himself in, where this book finds itself in the redemptive story of God, it makes total sense that we would tackle it as a whole, as we often do, and then that we would go on to uh, 2 Timothy, as we see this continued struggle for this young pastor in this influential uh, church. In this letter as a whole, we see instruction from Paul to Timothy, encouraging him towards faithful leadership. Okay, so if we think about some major themes that are going to be tackled and addressed as we work our way through this particular pastoral epistle, we will find that faithful leadership will be a central point. Uh, in this letter, a sound defense of the gospel, right? Uh, faithful leadership and a sound defense of the gospel and ultimately the reforming of the church in Ephesus. And so there's a big picture that we want to begin wrapping our arms around as we approach the entirety of 1 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. And that is this. Okay, this is our, this is our big idea. This is 30,000 feet. Right, and then we're going to drop down, and we're going to we're going to explore this a little bit more, um, a little bit more in depth. But here's the big picture, right? That that sound doctrine informs the gospel life. Sound doctrine informs the gospel life, producing authentic worship of God and gratitude for. Christ. We're going to, over the course of the summer months, as we work through these, these two pastoral epistles, be talking about the gospel-driven church, right? You see it, it's before us, that's what we're going to be talking about, that's what we're going to be addressing. But this morning, we see that it begins with a gospel life, right? What does a gospel life look like, and what does a gospel life give itself to? 
All right, what does the Spirit of God equip us for, and how do we go about day-to-day operations, especially in light of certain difficulties that we are undoubtedly to experience as God's people living in a fallen and corrupt culture? Sound doctrine informs the gospel life, producing authentic worship of God and gratitude for Christ. All of it is going to lead us into a greater appreciation for our king. And Paul does an absolutely marvelous job in this letter addressing certain issues pertaining to this culture and the law and how one ought to live their lives in light of the great glory of the revelation of our king Jesus. Right? These are issues that we're going to see Paul talking about over the course of the next of the next few minutes that we have together. Two observations that we are going to make through 1 Timothy chapter 1. First, a call towards sound doctrine and its defense. It's the first observation. A call towards sound doctrine and its defense. Now that might literally sound like Japanese to some people in this room, and I get that. And so hang with us as we work towards a deeper understanding in verses 1 through 11 of what this means. A call towards sound doctrine and its defense. Secondly, we will be looking at this, the emphasis on Christ's devotion and the role of the law. There's this this grand emphasis towards the the latter verses within this opening chapter uh, of this, this emphasis on Christ's devotion and the role of the law. And so we are, um, man, we are driven to greater worship. And appreciation for Jesus um, in verses 12 through 20. And so let's begin in verse 1. Let's begin at verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, the gospel-driven church as we observe this morning the gospel life. This is God's word. Man, and we are eternally grateful to have it. Beginning in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... By command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. We're getting a, a snippet here of what these issues are that, are that are permeating out of and causing great confusion within the church at Ephesus, which promotes, Paul writes, speculations rather than stewardship. From God, that is by faith. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. There are some bold statements from Paul pertaining to these issues and those involved in this opening chapter. Verse 8. Now when we know that the law is good, it, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. 
for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whoever else, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Whose service? His service, Christ's service. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, Paul writes, am the foremost, verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life verse 17 to the king of the ages there's this there's this prayer there's this proclamation in verse 17 in light of what Paul has just unpacked for young Timothy Immortal and visible, these characteristics of our king, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He just breaks out, right? He just breaks out here into prayer and and song and just this beautiful articulation of gratitude for what God has done in Christ. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy. My child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And then it just gets really personal here at the end, right? Verse 20, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Incredible. We have a lot to discuss. And so let's ask the Lord to, um, to teach us from his word today. Lord, thank you um, for your written word, for your preserved word, and for your spirit who opens our eyes and, and our hearts. Um, we are grateful for his work in us um, and through us. And we do pray that as we approach this passage this morning that we might do so in humility and that you might encourage our hearts and convict our hearts, that you might break our hearts, and that you might encourage us towards Um, the desired response that you have for your people in light of what we see here. Uh, You are good. You're a good, good God. And we are so grateful um, that you have spoken to us through your word. And it's in the name of Jesus, our King, that we pray. Amen. 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 So we have um, a little bit of ground to cover, and so let's dive in. We begin with this call towards sound doctrine and its defense. 
Okay, and so as we begin our time in this letter, we need to understand Paul and Timothy's relationship and how we have gotten here as it proves to be most helpful. We see Paul meeting Timothy, this beloved son of a believing Jewish mother and a Greek father in Acts chapter 16. And so as we approach 1 Timothy, again, this is just a simple Bible reading practice that is, that is most helpful. And this is a great opportunity to emphasize it as we find ourselves here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. As we come to the name of this particular individual to whom Paul is writing, it is most helpful for us to explore uh, the rest of the New Testament writings in order to best understand who this person is. All the details that I just mentioned about Timothy and who he is and the details that we will discuss in terms of his relationship with Paul can be found uh, in the New Testament. They're, they're all there. We're talking Acts chapter 16 in which we see this encounter between Paul and Timothy for uh, the first time. Paul would spend years discipling Timothy. And so let's say this, if we're all familiar or unfamiliar with what the discipleship process looks like, it's informed by some things that we see here um, in, these, in these opening verses and the relationship between young Timothy and um, his, his elder Paul, right? That discipleship is a process, right? That this is a, this is a relationship, that this is a work that the Lord has been bringing about through these two men uh, over the course of, of years, As Paul invests into and trains up young Timothy, only then to later on invite him on his various missionary journeys. These two guys um, have become really close. Okay, these these two guys are are super close to the point that Paul refers to Timothy in verse 2 as his true child in the faith. There's this truly deep and beautiful friendship that has been fostered and that has developed between Paul and Timothy, a friendship with added depth due to the grace, mercy, and peace that Paul and Timothy have received through Christ with the Father. This is an emphasis of Paul's opening remarks to young Timothy. Right, that there is a, let's just say this, let's acknowledge this as it pertains to our gospel relationships, that there are, uh, there are depths that we are able to explore together as a result of this, this common connection with the Father through Christ, the grace, mercy, and peace that we have received because of the centrality of the gospel in our relationships. Let me say that, let me say that one more, one more time. Let me see if we can simplify it, if we can strip it down to its like, its, its simplest common form, okay? If the gospel finds its home at the center of our relationships, there is a depth to our relationships that, that can go unmatched. Right? That there is a, a depth to a gospel-centered relationship that if the gospel does not find a home as the central aspect of our relationships that we will be unable to go to. Paul and Timothy serve as a wonderful picture of a gospel-centered relationship. 
of a gospel-centered friendship. At this point, I pray that we're doing inventory, right, in our own lives, and we're, we're starting to ask questions like, what are those, or who are those individuals, and what are the relationships that I enjoy in my own life in which the gospel occupies that central position, Christ Jesus, Right, and we, we say, yes, there is a depth that is present as a result of the gospel centrality that we enjoy. And, and for relationships to where we are perhaps Christians who even rub elbows with one another, and yet we do not come together and gather around God's word and celebrate the peace that Christ Jesus brings us. Man, there's a depth that we have yet to, that we have yet to fully realize that has yet to be manifest in our relationships, and our desires are for that. Our desires are for that. Paul and Timothy reflect the love of Christ through their relationship and interaction with one another. Paul invites Timothy into fellowship as, as Christ Jesus calls us into fellowship. He trains him in the scriptures and then he sends him out. This is what discipleship looks like. There's a, there's a fellowship that we enjoy in which the gospel finds a central place in that. And then we begin to train one another in the scriptures. And then we begin to send one another out. It's everything that we see through the relationship between Paul and Timothy. We fast forward to Acts chapter 16, verse 9. I know we're kind of flipping around here a little bit, but this is context, okay? This helps us understand their relationship. Paul receives in Acts chapter 16, verse 9, a vision from the Lord in which a man from Macedonia, okay, so there's this vision that Paul has, and there's a Macedonian man that appears to him and requests that he journey to his city in order to help his people. It's very, like, like, Obi-Wan Kenobi-esque, right? Isn't it? Like, it's like, you're our only hope. Here we are. We need you to come to Macedonia and to be here for um, our 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 people and to presumably um, proclaim the hope of the gospel of Jesus. And we see around this same time that this is happening in Acts chapter 16, verse 9, Paul has received word that there are major issues within, again, this incredibly influential church in Ephesus. Issues, issues that are in need of being addressed. Right, issues that are in, or, in, in order, issues in need of being addressed in order to solidify and ensure gospel understanding. And in order to solidify and ensure mission, and in order to solidify and ensure the existence of a healthy church. And so Paul, verse 3, leaves his close friend and disciple Timothy behind, sending him out to address these issues. To which we say, yet again, that this is what Christ-enabled, gospel-centered relationship looks like. Right? A, a, a making, training, and a sending disciples to make and train and send disciples. Do we get that, right? Like we are a church plant, and we are convicted from the scriptures that church planting is, is biblical and beneficial, that, that you bring a people together and you train them in the scriptures, right? And then you send them out to begin training and making more disciples 
in the scriptures, right? Does that make sense? This is, this is the gospel-centered model, but it doesn't exist only for church planting. It's how we relate in community and fellowship with one another. You think about the way that our small groups function here at Christ the King, right? We've talked about this again and again over the past few weeks, but this is an awesome opportunity to provide added insight to why we function the way that we do and we do the things that we do. DNA groups, essentially these groups to where we say, okay, we're going to pair you two guys together, and we want you to practice certain disciplines. We want you to read God's word together. We want you to confess sin to one another, to gospel one another, to pray for one another. We want you to train this person in the way of the scriptures and how to make disciples. And then we want to send this person that you have grown so close with away to begin doing that with more people. Why in the world would you do that? Well, because that's what we see. Like, that's what the, that's what, this is the model that the Bible lays out for us. This is the way that Christ related with his disciples, right? He, he trained them, he equipped them, he sent them out. It's the way that we function, right? And so we have uh, these DNA groups like um, Anna Jones and Rachel Stacy who have been together from the beginning to where we come alongside and we go, okay, um, we're going we're gonna, to, like, break you guys up now, right? <laughs> like, Yes, awesome. Like, no, that's hard. That's difficult. That's challenging. But that's the gospel life, right? Like, this is the gospel life. It is a making, training, and sending disciples to make, train, and send other disciples. It's why we do what we do, right? It's the gospel model, and it's how we relate with one another. We come to verse 5, and we begin to see this, this emphasis on the condition of our hearts as we participate in this type of work. Look there with me at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We see that the central focus of the life of the church, right, to to love God and to love people, is an emphasis here in Paul's first letter to Timothy. Only it's not a generic type of love, but it's an authentic love. And so even in saying that, we have to acknowledge that there is a distinction, right, between this this just generic love and this genuine and authentic love that the gospel produces within the heart of God's people. We see that this relationship, that this care, that this love flows from a pure heart and a good conscience. We see that it's a sincere faith, it's an active faith, it's genuine and it's working qualities that the gospel alone is capable of producing. And so as we read of this gospel-centered relationship and we understand the way in which these gospel-centered relationships function, Right? We need to understand that the gospel alone is capable of producing these types of relationships and this type of heart. And so if you're sitting here and you're going, man, I don't know if this is the condition of my heart, and I don't know that this is the desire of my heart, then I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. But what I am saying is that we need to go back to the heart of the gospel, right? Although perhaps maybe you're not a Christian. I don't know. We might need to do some work there as well. But but one thing that we can definitely say is that in order to, to live what Paul has been talking about, and in order to experience the relationship that these two men have enjoyed, and now the way that they minister alongside one another, it requires the gospel's work of bringing about and producing transformation. Okay, And so are our hearts transformed? Are these our desires? Naturally, no, they aren't. And so in order to possess them, in order to display them, in order to live in them, the gospel life 
There's a gospel reliance. Right? There's a gospel reliance. We, we need the gospel. We look to Jesus. We cling to Jesus. We abide in his word. And everything that we do is shaped by what we see there. Does that make sense? Are we together so far, right? This is, this is still, this is still point, point one, right? We see these qualities that grow out of the gospel's transformative work. Right? As we consider the gospel-driven church, as we consider the gospel life, we have to get that the aim of the charge that Paul reminds Timothy of requires gospel reliance. Right? It, it requires a trust in Christ for sustaining and a trust in the Spirit for strength. Why? Well, because this is a difficult work. Paul is writing to this young pastor who finds himself to a certain degree overwhelmed by what he is experiencing in this church. Right? The, the, the difficulties and the brokenness, the dissension, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. It's going to require reliance, right? You, you doing this, living this life, right? All that I'm charging you to do, charge is a major theme in 1 Timothy. Charge, this charge from Paul to Timothy is going to require reliance on Christ and the Spirit in order to be a part of this difficult work. Paul does not leave us to speculate to these issues, what these issues are. In Ephesus, but he writes that they are, verse 3, teaching a different doctrine. Now, this perhaps seems like a minor issue to you. Perhaps if you're not as familiar with doctrine, especially, and what that word means, truths from God's word pertaining to who he is and how he desires his people to live and function, how he desires his church to live and function. But what I'm here to tell you and what Paul tells us is that this is anything but a minor issue. These men, verse 4, have given themselves over to speculative issues. This is the problem. You have this, this group of men, these leaders who have infiltrated this, this, this church, this renowned church. And they're beginning to give themselves over to speculative issues, in this case, endless genealogies. They're just talking about all these genealogies found in the Torah. Right? And they begin to talk about, verse 6, the law and marriage and certain dietary issues. These are the things that are at stake here. And as a result, we see that there is a unity within the church that has been disrupted. Remember, hey, think about how this letter begins. There's this emphasis on the unity that the gospel produced, has produced, within Timothy and Paul. And now we see that within the church at Ephesus, there is disunity as a result of this, this unsound doctrine. Naturally, this would be a major issue for Paul. Are you guys with me so far? This is a big issue. To borrow from Pastor John Piper, doctrine matters. And that becomes most evident as we continue on in this story. The why is articulated beautifully by Puritan theologian John Owen, who writes this. Why is doctrine important? Why is knowing and embracing the right things about Jesus 
and the Father and the Spirit and His plan in redemption and His Word. Why are these such major issues? Are these major issues? Absolutely. Listen to what John Owen has to say. He says, when Christian doctrine is neglected. Now here we see that it is sound doctrine is being neglected. Right? That there is unsound doctrine and speculative issues that are taking over this church, producing disunity. When Christian doctrine is neglected, forsaken, or corrupted, then true holiness and worship will also be neglected, forsaken, and corrupted. Let me, let me read that one more time because this is huge. We can't miss this. Why is this a big issue? What is God's desire? For us, from us. Well, it's, it's worship of him. Right? Piper says that, that mission exists because worship of God does not. Right? That, that we, uh, we reside under the all authoritative power of a sovereign creator. Right? God. And he is worthy of our worship. He desires our worship, and to withhold worship from God is an act of cosmic treason. And Owen here says that when Christian doctrine is neglected, forsaken, or corrupted, that's what we see going on in the church in Ephesus, then true holiness and worship will also be neglected, forsaken, and corrupted. Right? That, there's, that we can't worship right if our doctrine is wrong. Does that make sense? We cannot worship right if our doctrine is wrong. And I'll give you a great example of this. We have had here in Carrollton, and you may or may not even be aware of this, an incredible opportunity to engage Mormon missionaries with the gospel. If you come on any given day when classes are in to this campus, you will see Mormon missionaries all over this campus, and they are more than willing to sit down and discuss distinctions of faith. Now, as you sit down with with Mormon missionaries and you begin to talk about distinctives of our faith, what you will come to find is that doctrinally the person of Jesus is an altogether different Jesus. And therefore, there is no reconciliation with God, right? You can agree in the incarnation. You can agree with uh, the crucifixion. You can agree with the resurrection. You can agree with the ascension. You can agree with the return of our king. But if you deny the person of Jesus, this, this core doctrinal issue, then that is of no benefit to you. Do you get that? You can't worship Right? You can't rightly worship God if your doctrine is wrong. And that is the emphasis that Paul is driving home here in these opening verses, charging Timothy to correct this, to set these things right, to put these things in place. Owen connects sound doctrine with worship. He points out that when doctrine is corrupt, worship will naturally become corrupt. It will become misguided. It will become uninformed. And naturally naturally results in disunity and confusion within the body. Naturally, disunity and confusion within the body. A distortion of the gospel. This is not who God is. Right? God is not dis, dis, disunified. Is that a word? Right? There is not disunity within, within the Godhead. Right? But there's perfect unity. There's perfect fellowship. 
We recognize in Trinitarian community our desire for perfect community and fellowship. Why? Well, because he displays it. And therefore, if there's disunity within the body, this is not an accurate representation or display of God. This is not the type of community that the Spirit produces within his people. Jesus brings unity and fellowship with the Father through his blood and to one another. Christ's community is marked by love and community. Man, if you don't, like, write that down. That's valuable, okay? Like, Christ's community is marked by love and unity. Christ's community is marked by love and unity. And therefore, as we see these minor issues, if we choose to tag them that way, manifesting themselves in the church at Ephesus, man, we run into some major problems, even as it pertains to the character of God and his existence. We see that this, that this false doctrine, that this corrupt teaching is cancerous, And Paul takes it super seriously. That's what verses 8 through 11 are all about. So let's go back to verses 8 through 11. Look at your Bibles. Look at your Bibles, verses 8 through 11. This is where we are. Listen to what Paul says. He says, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedience. These guys are giving themselves to, to issues of law. Right? Marriage and dietary restrictions. They're wanting to talk of these things and teach these things, of which Paul says, you have no business doing this because you don't understand what you're saying. He continues on, though. For the ungodly and for sinners and for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers. He goes on and on and on through verse 10. Through the law. Through the law. Get this. Through the law. And any effort to realize justification through our own obedience, we are confronted with our need for a Savior. Through the law and any effort to realize justification through our own obedience, we are confronted with our need for a Savior. This is what Paul is saying in verses 8 through 10. These leaders are neglecting this in their teaching. And so, Paul says to Timothy, set things right. Iron out this train wreck of doctoral understanding of salvation. And so we naturally ought to take advantage of this moment and seek to understand Paul's clarification that produces celebration in terms of what justification is. How are we justified? Well, we're justified by faith. right? We're justified by faith. Faith in the person and work of Jesus. This Jesus. This Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, We have... Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God says that all of our sins are forgiven. We are acquitted. The wrath of the judge is removed. And we now stand righteous before God. God announces that something has been taken away and something has been added. Sins have been taken away and a new righteousness has been given. This is justification. This is righteousness before God. It's not found in our own obedience. It's not found in the works of our hands. That way none of us can boast. This is what Paul says in the book of Galatians. 
But it has everything to do with who Christ is and what he has accomplished. Our faith, our confidence in him, that his life and that his death on the tree, right, that his resurrection from the dead, evidence of the satisfaction of the Father in his work. There's no need for any other sacrifice There's no need for us to try in vain to justify ourselves by the work of our own hands. It's fruitless, right? It's fruitless. It's exhausting. Is anyone tired? Like, that's exhausting. We can't do it. We can't justify ourselves. We're confronted. We're confronted in and through our efforts for our need for a Savior. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1, man, that we are justified through the work of Christ. We have peace with God. Paul gets this. Right? Paul gets this. And verse 11 is all about this. Look at what he says in verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, Paul, by the grace of God, grasps. The glory of the gospel. Paul, by the grace of God, grasps the glory of the gospel because he has seen his sin. And he has seen his need. And he has been affectionately called by God into life. A point that he articulates even more clearly in verses 12 through 17. Paul camps out, not in the speculative, as those who have, who have infiltrated the church in Ephesus have done. But he, trans, he, he camps out in the simplistic gospel. He doesn't, he doesn't camp out in the speculative, but he, he camps out in the simplistic gospel. We sing a song often here, and we're going to sing it today. <laughs> and it's simply called the gospel. And it says this, that Christ died for our sins, that he met death in his grave. He rose to life again, and by this we are saved. This is the simplistic gospel. This is the simplistic nature of the gospel, and it is cause for great celebration as we are confronted in it with the kindness of our God. That's why, listen, when we sing songs and we're singing of of our justification by way of the sacrifice of our king, as we are discussing the resurrection, man, if, if we are not leaned into that and proclaiming that with joyous hearts, we have got to begin asking some serious questions of like where we are and what in the world we are doing. Does that make sense? Right? Because we see that this, that this realization produces joy as we are confronted with the kindness of God. If we can stand here or sit here and with arms crossed and see on the screen songs that emphasize the resurrection of our king for the forgiveness of our sins and we do not want to just throw our hands in the air and sing, we are missing it, y'all. Do you guys get it? Like we're, we're missing it. It produces, this realization of the simplistic gospel produces a joy within our hearts. Not only are we called towards a defense of sound gospel, but an emphasis on Christ's devotion and the role of the law. This one will flow much, much quicker, so lean in. We just mentioned Paul's gratitude for God's grace in light of his keen awareness of the spiritual death that he had been plucked from. He continues down this stream as he establishes For us, a statement that when understood transforms the way that we understand God's work 
and word. Look with me at verse 12. Paul says this. This is the celebration in light of the statement that we read in verse 11. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. There's this realization from Paul of who he, who he was. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in, in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying, he says, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Here it is. Man, where's Robert Moody? He's here. Here it is, Moody. That Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What is Paul saying here? There's this incredible progression over the course of Paul's ministry. Right there, there's this incredible progression, and the same growth of grace that takes place in Paul's life is oftentimes present in our lives as well. Paul goes from referring him to himself as the least of the apostles in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to the foremost of sinners in 1 Timothy chapter 1. All right, we observe that there is in this passage an ever present interweaving. That's taking place as Paul processes and shares with Timothy, Timothy, both who he was and his realization of God's abundant grace in Christ Jesus. The point is this, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Right? There's this interweaving as Paul unpacks this for Timothy and for you and I. But what we see is that Christ rescues the needy. Right, he rescues, he rescues sinners. That this is the plan of God before the foundations of the world, foretold of by God and the prophets in his word, and it is displayed through the incarnation. Christ Jesus' entrance into the world to rescue sinners for our benefit and to the glory of his name. Let's understand those two things. Our benefit and the glory of his name. Paul says in verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his what? His what? I mean, you, you guys are, are smart people. What does it say? Perfect patience. His, his, perfect, his perfect patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, there is the ever-present interweaving that is taking place as Paul processes and shares with Timothy between Paul's need and God's abundant grace in Jesus Christ. There is a very real, very clear need observable in 1 Timothy chapter 1 to see humanity's need as we observe our need. Get this, so that we can grasp the gospel's power in our lives in order to move forward confident in the gospel's power for others' lives. Let me say that one more time. Just listen to this. This is how we understand and comprehend the inner weaving that Paul is working as he reflects on both who he was and God's great kindness and generosity in Christ Jesus that has made him who he is. There's a very real, very clear need 
to see humanity's need as we observe our need so that we can grasp the gospel's power in our lives in order to move forward confident in the gospel's power for others' lives. Here's what we're saying, and here's what Paul is saying. This is what the gospel says. Here's what the gospel says. <laughs> right? that, that no one is beyond the saving grace of our great king. That no one is beyond the saving grace of our great king. That as, as God rescues the terrorists, he displays his perfect patience. He displays his commitment to the redemption and the salvation of, of the lost. This is the overarching story of God's word. One that produces not, not distorted worship. Not corruptible or corrupt worship observed in these troublesome teachers and their followers, but a genuine worship that is present even in hardship. Look with me at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge, verse 18, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. The encouragement to Timothy is to hold fast to sound doctrine. What's Paul saying to Timothy? Hold fast to sound doctrine. Proclaim Christ's devotion to save sinners confidently. What does he come into creation to do? What is the incarnation about? It's about, it's about God right? bringing about the progression, this work of his plan to redeem. That's what it's about. I mean, we remember it every week. It's laid before us, right? To display his patience and his kindness, his great generosity and his commitment. His covenant-keeping love. Proclaim this. Right? That's the message. Right? That's the exhortation. Come, uh, hey, say this. Say this. This is what you're to say. This is what you are to be about. Hold fast to sound doctrine. Proclaim Christ's devotion. As he is most committed to sanctify and sustain The saints currently. This, Paul says, is your duty. The encouragement to you and I is much the same, right? To to hold fast to sound doctrine, right? What do we do, right? We we hold fast to sound doctrine. How do we know what sound doctrine is? Well, like, here it is, okay? Like, this is it. It's produced sound doctrine. Like, this is, who, who is Christ? Man, this is who Christ is, right? Like from, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Like here's, here's who Christ is, right? Here, here's what he's come to, to do. This is who God is. This is how he works, right? This is desires. This is what he's doing. This is what he has done. This is what he's accomplishing. Here's what he will do. Hold fast to sound doctrine. And speak confidently and joyfully of Christ's great devotion to save sinners like you and I. Do we get this? Like, this is the exhortation for Timothy, but this is our exhortation. This is the exhortation for for God's people in all places, for all time, right? To proclaim confidently and joyfully Christ's great devotion to save sinners like you and I. Confident that he 
uh, will bring about and continue this work that he has begun in us, that he will complete it. The mission that he is accomplishing through us will be accomplished, right? Like we, we get that, we grasp that, we hold to that, and that enables us to, to live mission and to proclaim confidently the, the gospel of Jesus, knowing that, that the end is, is ensured, that it is accomplished. May our lives, this, let this be our, our prayer, let this be our call, like this would be our desire as we conclude our time this morning. May our lives be evidences of the abundant grace of God. What does that look like? What does it look like for one's life to be evidence of the abundant grace of God? Well, it means that we do things like Paul does here, that we are familiar with who we are and these, these, these dark recesses of our lives that we would just prefer to like push away as opposed to bringing them out and using them as opportunity to display the patience of God and his great salvific love. Right? Like we bring them out and we go, this is who I was. Right? This is who I was. And this is what I'm capable of, but by the grace of God. Right? He's, he's rescued me. Right? He's, he's given me new hearts and new desires and new affections. We are now desiring Christ-exalting holiness. We're desiring Christ-exalted holiness. And so may our lives be evidence of the abundant grace of God as we, as we again grasp to a greater degree perhaps now as we conclude our time in 1 Timothy chapter 1 how sound doctrine informs the gospel-driven life and produces authentic worship of God and gratitude for Christ. That's where we have to land. That's where we have to land our time. We are, we are landing our time, and this is where it is. Right? That this is, this is what God does and this is what the gospel produces within us. Paul begins and he ends this book with the call to confront false teaching. He writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith. The faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Promise for the present life and the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil. And strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, command, and teach these things. This is where Paul begins, and this is where Paul ends, an exhortation towards these things. And so our final exhortation is this, man, wake up, right? We wake up and we pursue and love truth. We teach it. We give our lives for it. We want our desires and our affections to be submitted to it. Living, gospel-transformed, grace-transformed lives to the glory of our great King. Let that be the cry of our hearts and the desire of our souls as we come to the table today. Produce this within us. Produce it within us and lead us into a posture of worship and adoration that you are due. That's our cry. That's our cry. And that's where we finish. So let's pray and ask God to do that.